Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Here with Jay Schwartz, we're going to do some more dueling questions. I'm looking forward to it. I don't know that Jay was saving his best ones for this session, but we will see. I've got a few tricky ones for him. But thanks, sponsors. Heritage Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, and Tops, Panini, and Upper Deck. So welcome to the show, Jay. Pitch me up a softball. <laughs> Jim, I don't have any softballs this time. Okay. You're going to have to be ready. So here's my first question. Do you agree or disagree with the onset of non-human grading of cards? I am excited about the introduction of appropriate artificial intelligence uh, technology into the grading process. I am excited about computer-assisted grading. I am not excited about computers carrying the whole thing. I think, not to get too mathematical, but there's an optimal magnification of a printed product that will demonstrate the condition of the card. If you over magnify it, it's all dots. And I don't even know that any corner is perfect when you're talking about molecules and things like that. The human grading systems need to be speeded up to be able to do these uh, micrometers and other kinds of computer assisted things. I am welcoming that. Now, I would say I don't have a dog in the fight. I'm no longer the boss or anything like that. But I can see the PSA being a private company now has been pretty vocal about some of their acquisitions moving in that direction. And I encourage it. And I think they're the volume market leader. Certainly, when I wanted to be the thought leader <laughs> and I wanted to get as much business as we could, I think the road leads through technology for grading in the years to come, but not exclusively. So good question. Okay. My question for you is the role of personality in collecting. You're a marketing professor. You're friendly. You've got a good personality. How has that helped you in your collecting? And I think it is helpful, but if you were teaching a course on how to be an advanced collector, how to get ahead in the hobby, what would be the role of personality, especially in this day of, of social media and people being effusive about their collections? It's no longer a stealth hobby anymore. Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. And, and, and this is something that I think sometimes we learn from experience. You and I, in our many decades of collecting, have come across the good, the bad, the ugly in terms of dealers and fellow collectors. And I think you need to develop a sense of intuition with respect to your human relations if you're doing a face-to-face -face deal or your social media relations if you're doing a deal over Facebook or Twitter or whatever platform you're using. It's important to learn how to negotiate and never insult the other party. As a seller, I take a front when I get one of these ridiculous lowball offers. I've learned that if you get a ridiculous lowball offer, you don't insult the other party. You gain nothing from that. Some people have advised me just don't answer a low ball, which is one approach. Until recently, I've tried to come back with a reasonable counter. If I've got a $500 card and somebody offers you $100, that's really pretty insulting. Let's say it's a four to $500 card in value. So what do you do? Sometimes you think there's no deal when a deal can materialize. Sometimes what it takes is Maybe you change the narrative to, I see that you collect 53 Bowman black and whites. That's a tough issue. Do you have any others? And maybe the guy won't come down on this one, but maybe he's got some other ones and you can work a deal with the other ones that he isn't so dug in on. And that's how maybe you can get some common ground to get a new relationship started. So there's a relational engagement. Absolutely. But at least you're going to delve into it. 
Yeah, and you and I know from the old days when we didn't have the internet, it was almost all either card shops or card shows, and you had these face-to-face relationships, and now we're getting into this post-pandemic. People are really pent up in their demand to get back to card shows. And, right. you know, what I'm hearing, I heard the Dallas show here was just it was huge, yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I'm so happy for that, to just reinvigorate our hobby and, and just have that energy back again. Okay, your turn. Yeah, related to that, Jim, this is a topic that has come up many times, and you're one of the senior people in terms of our hobby and all. Do you see us right now as being more of a hobby, or we as an industry more of a business? And how would you break all that down? Okay, so is it three choices? Hobby, industry, or business? Or is it just two choices? Yeah, it's, I'm basically breaking yeah. it down between the collecting hobby side and the industry business I, side. I, I, this is an unpopular answer, but I, I think it's becoming more of a business in the sense that in you go back in the decades, and if, if my son was playing with your son, if we had sons of the same age, and they were playing in their 10, and your son or my son took the other son's cards, if this had been 20 or 30 years ago, it wouldn't even have been petty larceny. Nowadays, it could be grand larceny. The police could show up. Correct. That doesn't sound like a hobby to me. I had David Porter on a few months ago, the Panini outstanding guy. He mentioned that when he was a kid, his mom got packs of cards for all the other kids for his birthday party. But then as they were leaving, he traded back to get the cards from the other kids (laughs) at his birthday party. His mom got all upset about that. Okay, But that would be a hobbyist. But nowadays, somebody's parent would say, I don't know that there'd be legal action, but the numbers are too big, Jay. That's my point. The numbers are too big for this to be just the same hobby that we fell in love with many decades ago. It's a business. PSA's sale, their valuation. Tops is now going going, uh, public with with a SPAC and all these different things at multiples of what they were heretofore being worth. I'm going to still call it a hobby, but I think the numbers are so big with these world record prices. The warning for people is that it's more of a business and less of a hobby now. I think the IRS is going to consider that too. So don't be surprised if you get audited. Not you personally or me, but have your ducks in a row. Okay, my turn. I think I've noticed as you've talked about your collection and your collecting interest, it seemed like you stopped at 33, 1933, and I'm pretty sure you don't go all the way to the present. So how do you determine your collecting window? 33 for me was a marker because those are the cards my dad had. Do you have a window from 33 to 73 or what would be your collecting window and how do you see that as a guideline because everybody can't collect everything? That's a great question, Jim. Actually, I got to give a shout out to Joe Orlando on this one. When I relaunched my collection in 2008, of course, I'm looking to see how PSA is setting up its lay of the land, as it were. And as a collector and particularly a collector who had complete sets from 33 Gaudi to 75 Tops. I've seen all this stuff, and I've seen most of the tea cards. And, of course, I've never owned the Wagner, but I've seen a number of copies over the years, needless to say. So any advanced collector is looking for another challenge. And Joe developed a something called the Ultimate PSA Vintage Collection or something like that. I forget exactly the name, but you can look it up. I'm number one on the registry for this set. But what Joe did is he assembled basically a one of each, starting, as I recall, with the old judges, 1887, Mayo Cut Plug, Fatima, go through all the T issues, 
tattoo orbit, the Gaudis, the play balls, and you've got to have one of each, including all five. A lot of people will say top started in 52. And every time I see somebody make that, I say there were five mm-hmm. sets issued in 51, right. as you well know. And as you well know as well, there are three almost impossible of the current con- all-stars, Stanky, Constanty, and Roberts, as I recall, that almost no human has ever seen. They're probably test issues. Exactly. And my point being is, Joe assembled this ultimate collection. There were some issues that I had never even heard of that he put in there. It took me years to finally complete that set and build that set up such that I'm now number one in the registry on that. And that's what I find you know, challenging with Joe and now Steve, who's now the president of PSA, and Cosetta, who's the set registry manager. And one day I had one of these eureka moments. I called Cosetta and I said, how about you replicate that for football? And so now they've got the same thing for football, where you got to go back and find the Mayo football, 1894, and I'm starting to build that one now. And the fun of this is that it allows even advanced collectors another hurdle, and that's the fun of it. Well, you love the chase. Basically, you would have stopped at 33 until Joe found a way to outmarket the marketer. Correct. <laughs> okay, and what? how new would you go? 75 has been frequently thought of as a watershed in terms of vintage and then newer, but as time has passed, now a lot of people are calling the watershed between vintage and newer the junk era, the early 80s with Donruss and Fleer and the proliferation. So I bowed a little bit, and I always liked the look of 76s. Okay. So I'm building a 76 Topps baseball set. What's interesting is, however, and a lot of people might not know this, Try to find graded late 70s commons because most in, in great shape. They're miscut. They're, Tops had no competition. And not only that, but not many were great. Very few people are going to plunk down 10 to well, 20 bucks well, in the that, price that's going the old up price. to grade a yeah, common. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, your turn. Yeah, I'd like for you to be visionary, if, if you would, Jim, and look toward the future. Where do you see this hobby slash industry going in the next 10 to 20 years? What are some markers that you could foresee, say, in 2030, 2040? The main marker I'd like to see is continuing to increase the broad participation. People that enjoy a hobby, enjoy collecting things, enjoy sports, enjoy the getting together, whether it's virtual or in person, with like-minded collectors. So I don't require that prices would drastically go up. They've already drastically gone up. I'd actually like to see a more gentle increase, but an increase nonetheless. But what we're going to see are we're going to see some decreases and some increases, some big decreases, some big increases, and some things that stay the same. That's what makes the hobby interesting. But we've had a period where almost everything went up. That is unrealistic. That's not going to happen. If things keep going up drastically, the antidote to a crash is, is a more gentle increase. Crash is possible if there are drastic increases, thousand percent increases, such that if something drops in half, you'd say the sky is falling, when in reality, you're only up now 500% from before it went up. You've lived in some different parts of the country and visited many parts of the country. What do you think the best area of America is for collecting? To be a collector for the collected community, I don't know if you're going to say Southern California, but what, because I saw you when you were being a professor there too, what area of the country is better right now, you think? I'm really not equipped to answer that entirely, but I can just tell you that having lived all over the country, your roots are your roots. I just love growing up in Chicago, and we had... The Cubs and the Sox and the Blackhawks, and we had originally the Packers and then the the Bulls later. And one thing I really love about not only the Midwest but the East is you really have an enormous loyalty 
and fandom there. Like the black and blue division of football. And that's why Tony Giese and I are buddies because we love each other, but we hate each other. Because the Packers and Bears and that rivalry. And I understand, you know, the Cowboys have developed a rivalry in the NFC East, even though we're not in the East Not here. geographically yeah, it, proximate. It's, but it's yeah. interesting how that develops. But the, the sense of fandom, I think correlates to collecting, and that's not to disparage other parts of the country. But that said, when I moved to California, that's when Jack Petrozelli and Mike Burkus and Gavin Riley and, and the guys were really developing this national identity. And as you well know, some of the great early nationals were either in Anaheim or at Moscone in San Francisco. I was a national show dealer, and I can remember one show in San Francisco where the money was coming at me so fast, I couldn't even count it. I was just stuffing it in the pockets. It was like a feeding frenzy. And so needless to say, there's a lot of strong collecting in California, and I'm going to have to put a shout out to, I understand why, but I don't understand why. And where I'm going with this is, those of us who live in the West, we have not seen a national in decades. And uh, I love Chicago. It's my hometown. I'd love to go back to Chicago, but I wish that we could rotate again San Francisco or Anaheim back into the schedule so the West Coast collectors can have their show too. Everybody's got a, a base. The cities of the upper Midwest and the Northeast, New York, Boston, those fans there and their collecting bases are so strong. So I can't really identify one, but if I were to pick one, I'd say Chicago for obvious reasons. Fair enough. I think this year's national could be the best one ever if they open up the the turnstiles and allow anybody that wants to come. And if that happens, my hope is, in deference to your suggestion, that the national could be a twice a year thing. If it's going to be so big that you can't even hold it in a big convention center without overflowing, then going to twice a year, which really could open up some of these California venues. Mm -hmm. Because for a one shot, if it's once a year, Chicago is just too easy and too much for sure thing. But Anaheim, heretofore had been the greatest national. The, exactly. The national. And, and it, to not get another chance from since 19, that's 30 years. Correct. So thanks, Jay. Thank uh, you, fruitful Jim. dueling questions. And uh, thanks everybody for listening as we went down memory lane, not the uh, auction place, but the uh, actual lane. Be back again tomorrow with another episode. The man in the-